have had some more questions, but perhaps I'll put them aside for the moment because I'd like to go on to the second half of my contribution today and we might come back to the questions later. Earlier I was talking about who am I? Basic Christian understanding of human personhood. And now I'd like to come on to the theme of the heart. Dr. Dalak this morning often used the word heart and I'd like to ask this afternoon what we actually mean by the heart. Let me start by reading some words from St. Isaac the Syrian. Be at peace with your own soul, then heaven and earth will be at peace with you. Enter eagerly into the treasure house that is within you, and so you will see the things that are in heaven. For there is but one single entry to them both. The ladder that leads to the kingdom is hidden within your soul. Flee from sin, dive into yourself, and in your soul you will discover the stairs by which to ascend. There St. Isaac is telling us that there exists hidden within each one of us a secret treasure house, an inner kingdom, amazing in its depth and variety a place of wonder and joy, a place of glory, and a place of meeting and encounter. Now, how are we to describe this inner kingdom? Perhaps we could best describe it as the kingdom of the heart. Heart is a fundamental word in spirituality, both Eastern and Western, both Christian and non-Christian. A basic text for the Christian East is Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart with all vigilance. This keeps coming up in texts of the Philokalia and other such works. But the word heart is not an easy word to understand. The heart is deep. Let me start with the autobiography of the late Duchess of Windsor who was indeed an American, Mrs. Simpson. When she published her autobiography, she gave as title, The Heart Has Its Reasons. 
She is, of course, quoting Pascal. The heart has its reasons, which the reason knows nothing of. It's not very easy to say what Pascal meant by heart. But, though I did not read the autobiography of the Duchess of Windsor from cover to cover, it was fairly quickly clear to me what she meant by the heart. She meant the emotions, the feelings, the affections, indeed somewhat wayward and disordered emotions and feelings. Now, is that the true and proper sense of the word heart, or should we look further? Let me turn to a favorite text of mine that used to be recommended to me by my spiritual father, who was a Russian priest, Father George Sheremetyev. The text he liked very much was The Little Prince, Le Petit Prince, by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Goodbye, said the fox. And now here is my secret. It is very simple. Only with the heart can one see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Only with the heart can one see rightly. On ne voit bien qu'avec le cœur. There, the heart is not the emotions and affections. It is the place of insight, the place of inner vision. Now let's move to a book by C.G. Jung. Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Here he records a meeting he has with an American Indian, Ochwiebiano. See, Ochwiebiano said, how cruel the whites look. Their lips are thin, their noses sharp, their faces furrowed and distorted by folds. Their eyes have a staring expression. They are always seeking something. What are they seeking? The whites always want something. They're always uneasy and restless. We do not know what they want. We do not understand them. We think that they are mad. <laughs> I asked him why he thought the whites were all mad. They say that they think with their heads, he replied. Why, of course, what do you think with? I asked him in surprise. We think here, he said, 
indicating his heart. Now there you see the heart for Ochviabiano is the centre of thinking, the place of wisdom. He's not working with a head-heart dichotomy as we tend to do. Already we've moved quite a long way beyond the Duchess of Windsor. <laughs> now, let's turn to the Bible. And we find it agrees with the fox and with Ochviabiano. In the Old and New Testaments, there is likewise no head-heart contrast. The heart means not just the emotions or feelings. These are located in the symbolic pattern of scripture lower down in the guts and the entrails. But the heart in the Bible means the spiritual center of the total person. It's the place of insight, vision, and wisdom. Let's look at some familiar texts and see how this happens. Let's start with the text used this morning by our speaker, Matthew 6.21. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that's written up in the church as you go out by the left-hand door. I notice you have two doors in and out of the church. I suppose one for the sheep and the other for the goats. <laughs> Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The heart is the place where we formulate our primary aim our hope. The heart expresses our purpose in life. And as was said this morning, the heart is what determines our behavior, our action. The heart is in this way the moral center of the person. Very often in scripture the word heart corresponds to what we today would describe as the conscience. Take another text, Luke 2, 19. Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. The heart is the place where we ponder. It's the seat of reflection, of self-awareness, of memory. But, reading on in Scripture, we find that because of our sinfulness, because of our fallen state, the human heart is deeply ambivalent. As Christ says, out of the heart come evil thoughts. Matthew fifteen nineteen. St. Paul says, God gave them up 
to the sinful desires of their hearts. Romans 1.24 The heart then is the place where we come face to face with the power of evil and sin. But it's also the place where we encounter God, where the divine presence is at work. It's the place where grace is to be found, the place of supernatural indwelling. God searches the heart, Romans 8.27. The heart is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, 6. So we can see a very rich range of meanings in this one word, heart. The heart signifies the depths of the inner self. The heart means the human person seen as a spiritual subject formed in the image and likeness of God. There's a beautiful definition of the heart that I came across in a Roman Catholic writer who lived in India and who wrote under his Indian name of Abhishekthananda. I'd better write that up. And his original French name, he was a Benedictine, was Henri Le Sol. is the place of our origin in which the soul is, as it were, coming from the hands of God and waking up to itself. The place of our origin in which the soul is, as it were, coming from the hands of God and waking up itself. Heart is the place where we wake up. I'm full of admiration for most of you. If I was listening to a lecture after lunch, I would almost certainly go to sleep. <laughs> and that hasn't happened to most of you. However, I don't feel unduly offended when people go to sleep in my lectures because on one occasion I myself went to sleep in my own lecture. <laughs> I was unwise enough to give the lecture sitting down and as I continued I got more and more drowsy and I could hear a voice droning on. 
and suddenly I realised it was my own voice. <laughs> and I had no idea what I was saying. <laughs> so to avoid that awful fate, I on the whole lecture standing up now. <laughs> Horses could sleep standing up, but humans can't usually. So then, the heart signifies the human person seen in its totality, seen as an undivided unity. The heart is what Ephesians 3, 16, 17 calls the inner man, using man in the older sense, meaning human, the inner self. When Christ says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, he doesn't mean just with your emotions and affections. He means love the Lord your God with the totality of yourself. When Ezekiel chapter 11 speaks of the stony heart being replaced by a heart of flesh, what he means is an all-embracing spiritual renewal, the conversion of our whole self. In Proverbs 23, 26, when it says, My child, give me your heart, it means give me your whole self. Guard your heart with all vigilance text I've already mentioned, Proverbs 4.23, means keep watch over the entirety of your inner life. Know yourself. Know yourself as God-grounded, God-sourced. And the text I've used more than once, the heart is deep, means the human person in its totality in its wholeness is a profound mystery. So in these texts the heart means the human person as God's creation. The human person in its fullness and unity. The heart in this way is a symbol of wholeness, of integration. And the biblical anthropology of the heart is a unified, holistic anthropology. No division, no dichotomy between soul and body. When we turn from scripture to the fathers, sometimes we find in the fathers an understanding of the human person that is influenced more by Platonism than by the Bible an understanding of the human person which concentrates on the soul and makes a sharp contrast between the head and the heart. But other Greek fathers retain an inclusive, holistic vision of the heart as found in Scripture. For example, St. John Climacus, in his Ladder of Divine Ascent, chapter 28, quotes the psalmist, 
I cried with my whole heart. And commenting on this, he says, that is to say, with my body and my soul and my spirit. So the heart means the body. The heart refers, first of all, to the physical organ. But it's also the psychic and spiritual sense. Let me quote now from a 4th century work, the homilies of Macarius. This is from homily 15. The heart governs and reigns over the whole bodily organism. And when grace possesses the pasturages of the heart, it rules over all the members and the thoughts. For there in the heart is the intellect and all the thoughts of the soul and its expectations. And in this way, grace penetrates also to all the members of the body. So, first of all, Macarius talks about the pasturages or the ranges of the heart. The circulation of the blood, I think, was only discovered in the 17th century. We think of the heart as a pump, but the early Christian writers thought of it as a container, an empty vessel full of space and air. Then... Macarius says that the heart reigns over the whole bodily organism. The heart is the physical center. When the heart stops beating, we are dead. But Macarius goes on to say, there in the heart is the intellect. The Greek word here is nous, and I'll be coming back in a later talk to what that means. So Macarius agrees with Ochoa we think with our heart. Elsewhere he calls the intellect the eye of the heart. The intellect gives the heart vision, direction. And then Macarius says that through the heart grace penetrates to all the members of the body. The heart is the spiritual center, the place where grace is experienced, but it's also the meeting place between the divine and the human, between the spiritual and the physical. I return now to the text of Macarius. Within the heart are unfathomable depths. The heart in the scriptural and usage and in the fathers 
often corresponds to what we today designate as the unconscious. Within the heart are unfathomable depths. There are reception rooms and bedchambers within it, doors and porches, and many offices and passages, just like most Episcopal centers. In it is the workshop of righteousness and of wickedness. I shan't pursue the parallel. <laughs> in it is death, in it is life. So you see how the heart is the moral center. Righteousness and wickedness, death and life are present within the heart, struggling there. The heart is Christ's palace. There Christ the King comes to take his rest with the angels and the spirits of the saints. And he dwells there, walking within it and placing his kingdom there. The heart is but a small vessel, and yet dragons and lions are there, and there are poisonous creatures and all the treasures of wickedness. Rough, uneven paths are there, and gaping chasms. There likewise is God, there are the angels, their life and the kingdom, their light and the apostles, the heavenly cities, and the treasures of grace, all things are there. So for the homilies of Macarius, as these quotations show, the heart is all-inclusive, all things are there. The heart signifies the human person as microcosm. Rough, uneven paths are there and gaping chasms. The heart includes the depths within ourselves of which we are not fully conscious, the unconscious. There likewise is God. The heart is the place of divine indwelling. It is Christ's palace. The heart is the place of self-transcendence. So the heart is open on two sides open on the one side to the abyss of the unconscious, open on the other side to the abyss of divine grace. The heart is the point of meeting between body and soul, between soul and spirit, between the unconscious and the conscious, between the conscious and the supraconscious between human freedom and divine grace, between the comprehensible and the incomprehensible, between the created and the uncreated. Such is part, a very small part, of the meaning of the heart. The heart is deep. Yes, indeed, the exploration of the inner kingdom of the heart is a task to occupy us throughout our entire life. A task, indeed, not for this present life only, but a journey that continues 
unendingly into eternity, from glory to glory. Roads go ever, ever on. That is undoubtedly true of the journey of the heart. However, lectures should not go ever, ever on, so I'll stop there, and I'll invite comments and questions. I've been asked to repeat the questions so they can be fed onto the tape. Um, now, any questions? Why should we be compelled to make that journey into the heart? Why not, I mean, why not just stay a ship on the surface instead of what's the advantage of reason for being a submarine, as it were, to go into these depths? Why are we even motivated? Why should we make the journey of the heart? Why not just remain a ship traveling on the surface instead of a submarine that goes down to the depth? My answer briefly would be personhood is a gift from God and we should use our gift. In the story of the talents, the servant who buried his talent was not praised but rebuked. God did not say to him, well done, thou humble and chaotic servant, but on the contrary, he was rebuked for not using his possibilities. If then our personhood is a gift from God, we should use that gift and we should therefore explore all its depths and possibilities. Of course we can't explore all the depths, all the possibilities in one limited human life on earth. We need eternity, we need heaven in order to realize our full personhood. But we should at least use as much of ourselves as we can. And taking up what you said, Father, at the beginning of this afternoon's second session, it's true that most people have very little understanding of this Christian view of personhood. It's true that most people live their lives using only a very, very small part of themselves. This is the end of side one. Please turn the cassette over for the continuation of the message on side two. many gifts and possibilities that they are not employing. And surely God wishes us to enter into the depths, not to be superficial, not to be content simply with what lies on the surface. He wants us to search and explore. Why does Christ put most of his teaching in the form of parables, which end, as it were, with a question, instead of giving us a systematic code covering all the different aspects of our conduct, precisely because Christ wants us to search for ourselves.
not simply to passively accept moral rules, but to explore. And so I think that the theme of the Gospels again and again is that we should launch out into the depths. Or if you like, that we should wake up. All too many of us go through life half asleep because we have very little understanding of who we are and what effect our actions are having on other people. And if personhood is a gift, then surely we must use that gift and we cannot use it unless we understand at any rate in part what it is. How do we carry out this exploration? As you say, sometimes self-understanding comes through crisis. However, we shouldn't seek deliberately and willfully to bring crises on ourselves. If a crisis does befall us, then, as was said this morning, it can be an opportunity. Um, suffering is something that we can use, something can be made of it, but we shouldn't therefore inflict suffering on ourselves or on other people. So crises come, but they're not to be self-sought, self-induced. But how then can we um, learn to explore ourselves? And Part of the answer is, again, what was said this morning, prayer and fasting. In prayer, even though we are not talking about ourselves directly, we are all the time learning more about ourselves. In learning more about God through prayer, we learn more about ourselves because we are in the divine image. So certainly prayer is one vital way of exploring. And exactly the traditional purpose of the ascetic practice of fasting is to bring lucidity. When we eat and drink too much, our thought is foggy. If we fast with the church, not in a willful and arrogant way, but with the church, the purpose of that fasting is to give us light, lightness and freedom and clarity. So prayer and fasting are part of it. Then again, um, personal relationships help us. If we simply say, I will explore who I am and shut the door on ourselves and isolate ourselves and only think about ourselves, we shall learn extremely little about our personhood. But if we will take an interest in other people and enter into relationship with them and share with them, through getting to know other people, we get to know ourselves. And certainly, the experience of falling in love with another person is one of the cardinal ways in which 
our own person is revealed to us. When we really love someone else, then we begin to understand in a way we didn't before, who am I? Yes. The question is, how are we to understand the difference and the interaction between the exploration of the heart through religion and the exploration of the world through science? Um, first, I would want to modify your contrast a little, because religion explores not only the heart, religion also explores the world. And through our faith and prayer, we understand the world around us. But equally, of course, science is interested not merely in the external world, but in the inner world of the person. So I would see religion and science not as having different subject matter. They're both looking at the same things, which are the human person and the world in which the person exists. But I would see religion and science as looking at the same subject, but in different ways and on a different level. The difference, I think, lies not in the subject matter, but in the method. Religion more specifically, the Christian religion looks at the world and at the human person in the light of revelation, in the light of what God tells us. And therefore, its bases are scripture and tradition. Indeed, there is not a contrast between those two things because tradition is quite simply the way Holy Scripture has been understood and lived within the church from one generation to another. Tradition is simply Scripture lived, and Scripture is tradition in words. They are correlative, inseparable. So, Religion is looking at the human person and at the world in the light of divine revelation given to us in Scripture and in the Church's tradition, in the lives of the saints, in our worship. Science, on the other hand, is not using the idea of revelation. It is simply using the powers of investigation and understanding which all humans possess. Of course, God is also present in science because the powers of understanding which we possess are gifts of God. So we can't suggest that there is any truth which is not God's truth. All truth is truth from God. But in the case of science, we do not mention the name of God explicitly in strictly scientific inquiries. 
so I would see science as having a limited but genuine value from the Christian point of view. God has given us powers of observation, powers of mathematical measurement, powers of reasoning, and we are to use those to the full. But science is working on a different level from faith. In the end, I believe there need be no conflict between science and religion. We Christians should not be afraid of scientific inquiry. If Christ is the truth, then we need not be afraid of truth from wherever it comes. Science becomes, however, a danger once it is assumed that science can provide a total explanation of everything. Once it is assumed that the only truth is the truth of science. I do not call that science, I call that scientism, where everything is reduced to that which can be established through scientific and more specifically mathematical ma methods of inquiry. However, great numbers of leading scientists would not endorse scientism. They would not claim that their scientific methods of inquiry offer a total explanation. So as long as we don't think science provides all the answers, then I think we Christians, without fear, can engage in scientific disciplines. Uh, that's a very oversimplified answer to an immensely wide subject. Making it yet more oversimplified, I would say science on the whole tells us what happens. And it may how it happens, but it does not tell us why it happens. Why is there a world at all? That is not a scientific question, though it is a question that we as humans want to ask. Why do I have a sense of right and wrong that is quite distinct from my desire to avoid pain and seek pleasure, or if not quite distinct, that is more than simply that. Why do I have immortal yearnings within me? Why do I love other people? Those, I think, are not scientific questions, though they are certainly human questions. And those are the questions, the questions why, that I believe religion is answering. Yes? Is there any uh, spiritual transfer in a, in a heart transplant? Is there any spiritual transference in a heart transplant? To give a quick answer, I would say no. When we speak of the heart, we are speaking of the heart as a physical organ, but we mustn't understand references to the heart 
in too literal a way. The heart is a symbol of spiritual reality. Therefore, if someone undergoes a heart transplant, I believe they remain the same person as they are before. I don't think the heart transplant would in itself mean they acquired the spiritual characteristics of the person whose heart they received. Obviously the relationship between the physical and the mental is extremely complex and by making physical changes in people's bodies and in their brain we can, as we know very well, then make changes in their character and their behavior. So there is a connection, but I don't think it is to be understood in too direct a way. Therefore, I personally do not have theological objections to heart transplants, though I know some Orthodox do. Now, one more question? Well, I've got one or two questions here. Will we still have remorse in heaven over Calvary? The fact that Christ suffered and died on the cross is something that we shall certainly never forget. And we know that at the second coming, Christ will appear on earth bearing the wounds of the cross on his hands and his feet and in his side. At the resurrection from the dead, we shall see him with those wounds still on his body. And so the fact that Christ has died for us on the cross remains as an eternal fact. But as I understand it in heaven, we will not feel remorse over that. Remorse would be the wrong word. The suffering of Christ will be transfigured in glory. Then a last question. Does God laugh? It is nowhere said in scripture that Christ laughed. It is said that he wept. On the other hand, throughout scripture, and not least in many of the parables of Christ, I find humor. Even if Christ did not laugh, I wonder whether he did not smile very often as he told the different parables. And if we were Jews 
of the first century listening to him for the first time, I think we would understand the humor in the stories much more than we do when we hear them today. So I believe that humor is a quality given to us by God and that may be used for his glory. But like all God's gifts, it can be misused. Laughter can be cruel, hostile, condemnatory. Laughter can be a form of mockery and rejection of others. We can laugh against people. But laughter can also be deeply healing. Laughter can be a way of reaffirming others and of expressing our love for them. So one definition of the human animal is an animal that laughs and weeps. Thank you very much.